Good day, folks, and thank you for listening to the podcast today. And I, I say that, and I do appreciate your listening, because I've, for years, I've spoken to people, and when you do that, you're naturally, you're seeing the people that you're speaking to, and you're obviously drawing some energy from that and also getting their reaction. And sometimes when you're doing this alone, sitting here alone, you wonder, is anyone really listening out there? So I really do appreciate those of you who do listen. And thank you. Some of you have sent me so many encouraging words, and I do really appreciate that. But let's continue along. We have been uh, looking at what I call the second half of the podcast. This is Jesus in interviews with Nicodemus, who's the religious political leader of his day, and the woman at the well who's uh, down and out, the one that uh, pretty well been rejected in life. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He's going to uh, question him, really interrogating him. I mentioned last time there was a scene in the temple that Jesus had caused when he overturned the, the Sanhedrin council, kind of sent out Nicodemus to question Jesus as to what's going on. Find out who this guy is. Find out what he's all about. And Jesus, initially, uh, we mentioned last time, he had told Nicodemus that you need to be born from above or born again just to even see or comprehend the kingdom of God. You've got to begin to see things from God's perspective, not just your human perspective or even your religious perspective. You need to understand who I am and why I've come, why God the Father has sent me. And after Jesus uh, tells Nicodemus this, what's his response? Well, he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, I think that Nicodemus is aware that physical birth is not what Jesus is talking about regarding being born from above. And it seems like he's using a little sarcasm there because he doesn't understand. And he's suggesting that what Jesus is saying is impossible. But the fact is the most of minds have always struggled to discern the truth of Jesus. Now, the Apostle Paul writes, and by the way, the Apostle Paul was no academic slouch himself. He was highly educated. But he knew that few of his peers would ever accept the truth of Jesus. And so he writes a letter to the Corinthians, and here's what he tells them. He says, The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And he tells them, he said, Look, brothers and sisters, think of when you were called. He said, Do you, do you realize not many of you were wise or brilliant by human standards? Not many of you were influ influential? And you didn't come from any noble birth. He said, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That's quite a statement. And, you know, what do we do with that statement? Well, even today, sometimes we lift up and exalt the ones God is telling us not to look to. And we ignore those that have the truth. Because after all, they're like Jesus. They're from the Nazareth of the world. What do they know? For Nicodemus to accept what Jesus is saying, he needs to come out of the box, if I can use that term, the religious box that he's in. And it's understandable, everything to that point, you know, the whole Jewish system and ritual, everything he had was what they knew. And Jesus is coming to introduce something that's brand new, and he's struggling, as I just mentioned, to come out of his box. Now, is it the same today? Do we take 
the life and teachings of Jesus and then try to fit them into our religious denominational beliefs and systems, and a lot of which have been man-made over the centuries. Is our faith in Jesus alone to redeem us and keep us? Or do we mix it with our faith in theology, doctrines, religious rituals, uh, traditions of whatever particular organization that we belong to? Are we truly listening and following Jesus or some self-proclaimed religious leaders? Do we listen to them sometimes more than we follow Jesus? And I'm not talking about right now whether we're saved or unsaved. People throw that around all the time. It's whether or not we are reflecting the kingdom and character of Christ in our lives with the love, joy, peace, and liberty that Jesus died to give us. When we let religious denominations and when they dictate to us what we must believe, how we must live and practice our faith, when that winds up happening, there's going to wind up being unrest, anger, judgment, division. Love will grow colder and colder. And over time, people become self-righteous religious bigots that no one wants anything to do with but those that are in their little inner circle. And when you, those you are supposed to reach with the truth of Jesus, they wind up ignoring you and then you wind up judging them. It's how crazy the religious spirit the enemy has used for centuries. It's been given so much power that people perceive the truth, like Nicodemus is here, people perceive the truth of Jesus to be a mixture of his teachings and their religious dogma. And they never get set free. And they give power over to, and when I say giving power over to the, to the religious spirit, the religious system, over to Satan, they're giving him power because Satan, the only power he will ever have is what people give to him. Why? Because bulletin, he's already been defeated. Jesus defeated him on the cross and defeated him with his resurrection. And deception is his only tool to keep us in bondage. And discernment, the spirit of truth, is our only way out. So let's look a, a little bit further at what Jesus says next to Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say unto you, this is the second time or third time he's told him truly, truly. He's definitely trying to make a point. He said, except a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot into the kingdom of God. So born again or born, born above by water and the Spirit, what's he mean? Well, I think he pretty well explains it in the next comment that he makes. He said that he who is born of the flesh is flesh and he who is born of the Spirit is spirit. He says, so don't be shocked, Nicodemus, that I'm telling you this. He was trying to get him to understand that a whole new life was necessary. And he's comparing natural birth to spiritual birth. The first man, Adam... Now we need a new man in Christ. Adam, of course, was a sinner, and Jesus had told them when they ate of that tree that the day you eat thereof, you would die. So everyone in Adam 
would never have eternal life. They would never enter the kingdom of God. Sin kept them out. We needed a new Adam, so to speak, a new man, a new birth, and enter Jesus to redeem us. All, everyone before Jesus, all they were doing was waiting for him to come on the scene. And that's what the people, the religious leaders of Jesus' day never understood. They did not see the scriptures as at all pointing to him. We needed new life breathed into us. And Adam, when God created Adam, he breathed life into him and Adam became a living soul. After the resurrection of Christ, he breathed out the Holy Spirit. He breathed out a new person, a redeemed sinner who would be quickened or given new life, eternal life by God. This was something brand new. Man is powerless to redeem himself, and Nicodemus, like all of us, need to understand. He needed to understand that the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices couldn't redeem him and bring him into the kingdom of God. And today, people need to understand that their church systems, their denominations, their traditions can't get them into the kingdom of God. Only Jesus can redeem them. And the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifices, Nicodemus needed to understand it was never meant to redeem them. It was a temporary way of life that was pointing to and looking forward to the Messiah who would deliver them and set them free. But religious leaders didn't see it. Matter of fact, the, the Messiah that they were looking for was just going to be another man born under the line of King David who was going to set them free from Roman occupation and restore the kingdom that they had known up to that point, the earthly natural kingdom. And so, as I mentioned before, he needs to come out of his box. And this is a point I want to make. There is nothing stronger than religious strongholds. Uh, the Bible talks about strongholds uh, more so in the Old Testament they, when they were talking about uh, different warfare and stuff. That the, You could have strongholds that were impenetrable. Nobody could get through them. They were so powerful. Now, Paul in the, in the, in the New Covenant, he makes it more about a spiritual thing that we need to tear down every stronghold of the enemy and the religious stronghold, well, I would suggest to you, is the strongest one that he uses. The enemy knows that through religious strongholds, you can control people, you can move people to do anything you want. And you know why they do it? Because they believe God's in it. They think God is instructing them to do it. Wars have been fought. People have been oppressed and suppressed, marriages, families destroyed, and Christians divided, lots of time using God's name, and all it is is religious strongholds that people can't detect and walk away from because the discernment that God placed in their heart is being quenched by the religious strongholds that's in their minds. Now, I just mentioned wars are fought. Well, the Crusades were fought in God's name. Uh, in our lifetime, we were fighting godless communism. So we, we, we put God into the name of that. And of course, in Islam, uh, they fight under the name of God. I mentioned people are oppressed or suppressed. Well, I think that's happened to indigenous people. I mean, we look in our country, Indians, the Armenians. The Jews over the years, 
I mean, religious strongholds can be so ridiculous that, I, and I heard this statement and, and in regards, it was a thing regarding slavery. And the guy said, there are some good God-fearing, Bible-believing clansmen. And I'm thinking, okay, in the name of God, we're going to do that? Marriages and families, how have they been? Well, Kathy gave me an example. We were just talking not too long ago, and she told me about a situation in her family years ago. I don't know that this would happen now. This was years ago. We were very much into the Catholic Protestant thing years ago. And uh, if you were a Catholic, you didn't marry a Protestant. If you were Protestant, you didn't marry a Catholic. Of course, you're all believing in the same Jesus, but what did that matter? Religious strongholds tell you Catholics don't matter, marry Protestants. So she had a family where the parents, one of the parents didn't go to the marriage. They couldn't go because the person was marrying, quote, outside their faith. I really thought our faith was in Jesus. I didn't know our faith was in a denomination. And sometimes in our life, even the unconditional love of Jesus that's supposed to fill us, through religious strongholds, we regulate that. People will be doing in our family something that we don't agree with, and, and we will separate ourselves from them and not even talk to them because we think, well, God will be mad at me if I do because they're doing something wrong. And so we withhold the love of Jesus because of some religious stronghold that's in our mind. And don't get me wrong, people can be doing things that are wrong. But I don't think you shut off your love. Some of you listening have probably seen churches divided over religious strongholds. You don't think churches are divided over doctrines? This one's considered a heretic, that one's considered a heretic. Why? Because they don't believe the way we believe. And... There are all different kinds of religious strongholds. Some people, well, I don't pray enough. And so they get under bondage to pray, which is kind of silly. I don't read my Bible enough, so they get under bondage to read their Bible. I don't give enough, so I'm going to give out of law, give out of pressure, which is anything but what God would want. I don't fast enough. I don't go to church enough. Yeah. And I'm speaking to you, the one, as one, who had strongholds myself. When I, for years, when I was a young Christian, I, I, to me there was, I had to, I was told Jesus freely forgave me, and part of me believed that. But somehow or other, I had to make up for my sins. I had to do enough restitution I could to, to, to almost like gain God's forgiveness. And I, and I firmly was so twisted that I believe God wants me to do this. If I don't do this, then he's not going to accept me. And, and, you know, maybe he forgave the sins I committed before I was a Christian, but he certainly can't forgive the ones after I'm a Christian. God can't forgive them because, after all, it's on me now. So the stronghold becomes so bad with me that God died on the cross for my sins and redeemed me, but now the rest is up to me. I'm on my own now. I need to live a holy and righteous life or I'm screwed. Pardon the expression. I'll lose my salvation. 
A person who thinks he can lose his salvation is generally someone who thinks he gained his salvation in the first place on his own. I did not redeem myself and I can't keep myself. I am kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation and even the faith he gives me is a gift because he is both and the finisher of our faith. And insofar as living holy and righteous, another bulletin, there's only one holy and righteous one. His name is Jesus. And only his holiness and his righteousness counts. And the wonder of it all is when we are one with Jesus by faith in him, God our Father sees the holiness and righteousness of Jesus in us, not our own. And by walking with Jesus in love, then his holiness and his righteousness can be reflected in our lives. It can be in us and come forth through us. And that's what we want to do. We want to reflect the holiness and righteousness of Jesus in our lives. And the only way we're going to do that is walk with him in love. Serve him and serve others in love. I'm going to just go on here for another minute about religious strongholds, because sometimes they can work in two ways. On the one hand, there are those that spend their lives, like I just mentioned, trying to punish themselves to atone for their sins. And what are they doing? Trying to save themselves. And by the way, that's insulting to Jesus, because what you're saying is you did not do the work on the cross. You didn't finish the work. on. When you said it is finished, no, the rest is up to me. You only did part of it. And, on the, and then there's others that are on the other end of the spectrum. They're going to live an incredibly self-righteous lifestyle, get God to accept and bless them, and that's equally insulting. And instead of serving him alone, both sides are what? Serving religious strongholds. Both believe they're right, and both are wrong. Jesus is there saying, I came to love you, redeem you, set you free so that you could simply walk in an intimate personal relationship through eternity. I will guide you, direct you, correct you, comfort you, encourage you, and exhort you. I will teach you, if you let me, I will be your protector, provider, and nurturer. That's why I came to you. The stuff you are holding on to is the, excuse me, is the stuff I came to set you free of. Your And you don't even realize it's your pride and ego and fear and shame and guilt and anger and blame. You need to let it all go and live out of the new man, the new life in me. Jesus brings us back to the Father. He's a uniter. Religious strongholds are dividers. Hold on one second. I'm going to take a drink of water. So Jesus tells him, you must be born again. Let's look at that for a minute. The term born again Christian. In my lifetime, that term has been uh, popularized, well, actually more than any other time in history. And it's almost sometimes, I just talking about religious strongholds, it's almost sometimes we make another religion around being born again. Uh, We come to believe that there is a particular way a person becomes born again. He has to pray a certain prayer, uh, answer an altar call, get baptized a certain way, 
And of course, there's nothing wrong with praying a sinner's prayer or an answer on an altar call. However, that's not the only way one can be redeemed. Born again is not some uh, formula or a ritual or some pattern that you follow. If that's the case, you turn it into just another religious practice. And then you come to believe that unless a person doesn't do it the way you do it, then they have no salvation. And there are some people, you look at them, and there are people that pray, they seek God, they believe in Jesus. Yeah, but they haven't been born again in the way I have been taught, so they're not saved. Really. Sometimes it amazes me how anxious Christians are to send so many people to hell. Because they don't do the things the way they do it. Would it surprise you to know that there was no such thing as a sinner's prayer or an altar call until the 1800s? Uh, Finney started it, Charles Finney, and others like D.L. Moody, they came to do the same thing. And of course, in my lifetime, Billy Graham, he was the first televangelist. I mean, there were evangelists before him, but he was the first one that, he was in the television era when it was starting out, and so he used that television to really get the message out, and uh, and he took the altar call and the sinner's prayer to a whole different level. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. You just can't believe that, well, you can't be thinking that, well, if a person doesn't do that, then they're, then they're not saved. Well, what would you do with all the people before the 1800s? The apostles knew, never knew anything about a sinner's prayer and altar call. They didn't have any altars to call people to. <clears throat> and it was that way through the centuries. I think the Apostle Paul, in, in his letter to the Romans, he says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, you'll be saved. You need to understand that he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. God the Father has sent them to redeem mankind. He's been raised from the dead to give us eternal life. I need to understand that. I need to believe that. And so what I need to do is put my faith in him that he's my redeemer. And Paul says, what a man believes in his heart, he'll confess with his mouth. <clears throat> oh, excuse me, this is embarrassing when my throat <clears throat> does this thing. Jesus says, he who confesses me before men, him will I confess before my father. Now, what's he saying? The Apostle, Apostle Paul and others were going to face some severe persecution in their faith in Jesus. And when challenged, they were willing to confess with their mouth, Jesus was in fact their Lord. It isn't so much that they were confessing that to get saved. They were confessing that to others to confirm the fact that Jesus had already redeemed them. What was in their heart, they were willing to confess before others. It wasn't so much that their words saved them. Jesus redeemed them by the faith that he placed in their heart. The Holy Spirit moves upon the heart. When Jesus was on earth, he said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And after Jesus, no one comes to Jesus unless the Spirit draws him. So the key is what you believe in your heart. And the very things that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He came to 
die on the cross for my sin and raise from the dead to give me eternal life. I believe that and I look to him for that. <clears throat> and what you truly believe in your heart, some forth, somehow or other, it's going to come forth in your life. Kind of seals what's in your heart. Paul talks in uh, Romans, the 9th, 10th, and 11th chapter, he's talking specifically about Jewish folks there, and he's talking about the strongholds that were binding them. That they, that they couldn't get past. Uh, there was a period of time there where they believed, unless a person is circumcised, he can't be saved. And Paul's trying to tell them, guys, circumcision of the heart is what matters, not the physical thing anymore. All that was pointing to was something else. It's your heart. It's what's taking place in the inner man now. <clears throat> so again, when a person acknowledges all that and puts their trust in Jesus, then they're born again. No formulas, no rituals, not a particular prayer or religious practice. God sovereignly deems people even today around the world. And when I say sovereignly, I mean he's doing it. <clears throat> they don't even have an opportunity, a lot of them, to do some of the public things that we do to express our faith. Nevertheless, they're born again. And let me say it again. I'm not disparaging altar calls, sinners, prayers, or baptism. That's all good. It's all basically already revealing the redeeming work that Jesus has done by his spirit. I, sometimes I think of the example of my mother and father. Now, I grew up as a little kid in the 50s. My mother and father never even heard the expression born again. They never heard of an altar call. They never heard of sinner's prayer. But my mother and father went to church. They, they prayed. They sought God. They believed in Jesus. <clears throat> and who am I to say, well, they're, they're not redeemed because... They didn't do what I did. Religious strongholds can blur the truth that Jesus has come to set us free with. And I'll say it again. We don't walk away from it sometimes. We become, we've become been duped into believing that if I walk away from this, I'm walking away from God. That's how strong it can get. Okay, let's move on. And uh, I wanted to talk here for a minute about uh, what Jesus uh, had said to the apostles. And this is in uh, right before, actually, right before almost uh, when he was going to go into Jerusalem for the last time. But before I say, read the scripture, let me say this. Secular religious rulers will always feel threatened by those that have true spiritual power. And that's what's going to happen when Jesus goes into them for the last time. They fear losing their rule over people. Why? Because their lies are exposed and their eyes are open to the truth that sets free. And those that have the spiritual authority, the, tr the truth of Jesus, they're deemed dangerous. And then they get dismissed as being unqualified and lacking the necessary credentials because they question the established order. Boy, do we need to do that today sometimes. And don't expect when you question the established order, if they're filled with religious strongholds, you're going to have the same kind of pressure 
that Jesus had, the apostles had, that others have had through the centuries. Because like Jesus, you're going to be considered a nobody of Nazareth. And the fact is, and this is the scripture that I want to read, by our faith in Jesus, he has given us power to move political and religious mountains that stand in opposition to the kingdom of God. So let me read this scripture, and again, it's before Jesus is going into Jerusalem. In the morning as they went along, they saw a fig tree, and it's withered from from its roots. Now the day before... Jesus had seen this fig tree from afar. And it had the leaves on it. At that time of year, those leaves would indicate that there would be some fruit, like nodules that they would use. It wasn't really the time for the harvest, but they could eat this at this time. But when he gets there, all he finds is just the leaves and absolutely no fruit on it, and he curses the fig tree. And I'm sure when his apostles saw that, what in the world are he cursing a fig tree for? So now the next day, they come and they find that fig tree withered. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. He said, truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, It will be done for them. Now, what is he talking about there when he's talking about saying to the mountain? Now, again, this is before he's going into Jerusalem that he's already called them a den of thieves. And he's going into their religious, their temple, their priesthood, the whole thing. And they're also under Roman bondage, the Roman government. The fig tree here represents the nation of Israel. Their leaders had rejected the kingdom of Jesus and instigated a rebellion against his authority. And mountains in scripture are representative of various kingdoms all throughout the ages. And at the time of Jesus' making this statement, Israel was under brutal Roman occupation. So Jesus was suggesting that as his followers lived out the kingdom of God by faith, power of the Roman government would be eroded and eventually cast into the sea. And the sea there represents all the other nations of the world. In other words, they would be dispersed into the sea because they rejected the rule of Christ. And of course, that's exactly what happened. 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. It was destroyed by the Romans and then later the Roman Empire was destroyed. And through the centuries, every empire that's been antichrist has been destroyed. Everyone. God allows them to go only so far, and then he confounds their wisdom and brings them to nothing and casts them into the sea. Now, you've all heard the story of Jesus walking on the water. And Jesus was making a similar statement when he walked on the waters of Galilee. It was known as the Sea of Tiberias, which was the city nearby, and that was renamed by the Romans, by their puppet king, Herod Antipas. And it was named after the second Roman emperor. They had taken that area in Israel and named it, that sea, after a Roman emperor. 
And what's Jesus doing? When you set your feet down, one day it says he will set it down on the Mount of Olives. When you set your foot down, you are making a statement, this is mine. You are making a statement of lordship. When he walked on that sea, it was a triumphant display to all. He was walking on all human governmental powers and putting them under his feet. He did it then. He's doing it now. And you know that story, Apostle Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Apostle Peter tried the same thing. He sees Jesus and said, Jesus, if that's you walking on the water, then bid me to come to you. And unfortunately, he was sinking fast until Jesus came to save him. And the point I see in that is we're only going to rule and reign with him when we walk hand in hand with Jesus. We're not doing it on our own. We need his. We need to be one with him, have our faith in him, in him alone. And then we can walk on the mountains and we can walk on the water. We can do it, spiritually speaking. Unfortunately, the world was not ready for Jesus' rule. And so now what are we doing? We're waiting for his return. Nevertheless, we're not to sit idly by as the kingdoms of this world work their oppressive rule over the nations. Jesus has given us spiritual authority to live out the kingdom of God, to let our light shine and reflect the very character of Christ. That's how we will tear down every stronghold. We're not going to do it through politics and finance and media, government. Christians are going to rise up one in Christ and spiritually tear down every stronghold. And for Christians to do that, it's necessary for them to mobilize with a united front. Yes, unity. And that seems to be far from the case. We've allowed an enemy in our midst who delights in our division. We are, we're talking about moving mountains. We argue over anthills. We are divided by denominations and man-made doctrines. We're divided economically. Social classes separate us. Politically, we're polarized by either an ultra-liberal or conservative cause. Catholic or Protestant, I meant. Union, non-union, black, white, left, right. That stuff is all part of the serpent's lie to divide and destroy the kingdom of God and dilute the truth of the message of Christ. And the fact that we are so easily duped to play along with the lies is a sad commentary for those who have been given the kingdom, the keys to the kingdom of God. If we think we're going to put one foot in the kingdom of God and the other foot in the kingdom of man, then we are insignificant to a lost world because we have no identity ourselves. cry of Christ has always been for his people to come out of the bondage of Babylon and look around you. You're seeing another, remember the original Babylon? That's what's going on through the ages. I don't care if you call it the Egyptian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Greek Empire, the British Empire, whatever you want to call it. It's just Babylon all over again and we're seeing it now. And the cry of Jesus has come out of her, my people. For us to fail to discern and reject the divisive systems of this world, then it leaves us with little more than another religious message. 
that lacks any power to reach others with the gospel of truth. And I will tell you, sometimes you can turn around the TV and you can see some religious leaders that are out there and that feel-good evangelism, that that, uh, inspirational speaking that they're doing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with inspirational speaking. I mean, uh, you can find a zillion people that do that, but the gospel of Jesus challenges you. It challenges you to yield all to Christ. It challenges you to look around and say, come out of her, my people. We need to be united again with the source of our true power. The power lines that have been, you know, you lose power. We had a violent thunderstorm down here last night and people lost power. Well, those lines need to be restored and they need to be repaired to get the power going again. The Apostle Paul knew that the only way it was going to happen was our oneness, our oneness in Christ and our oneness with each other. And he writes in Ephesians, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, imagine that statement, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace. He said there's only one body and one spirit. You were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, was over all and through all and in all. Every Christian is washed in the same blood of Jesus and given new life by the same spirit. To allow ourselves to be divided is to divest ourselves of any power and give ourselves over to the rule of the serpent's strongholds. Our power, I'll say it again, is in our oneness with Jesus and our oneness with each other. From the calling of Abraham, it's been God's intent that his people be unique in their submission to his kingly rule. And their uniqueness would serve as a lighthouse to other nations that were lost in a sea of false religion and oppressive earthly rulers. Never were they to mimic the religious or governmental systems of lost nations. Um, You know, I've been 38 minutes. I better stop here. God will set us free from every religious stronghold. Yes, he will. And it will cause us to have to even examine ourselves, examine our hearts and and say, Lord, am I looking to you and am I looking to you only? Am I looking to the religious, political, economic systems of my day to give me what only you can truly give me because I will never find peace, rest, and joy in them. That's only mine in Christ Jesus. Amen, and thank you again for listening.